Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 9th, 2020. This is episode 2615 of the Survival Podcast. And even though it's a Monday, we're not doing a listener feedback show today. We are doing a standalone twofer. I will take about maybe 10 minutes and, and continue to do updates on coronavirus since that's what everybody's thinking about. And because the stock market went into flipping freefall this morning because the Saudis declared an oil war and Russia's on board with it. And I'll tell you why it's not good, but we can stop pretending the world is ending. And uh, we can also see some opportunity in what's going on right now, what will continue to go on as panic continues to ensue. Um, I'm always the one that looks for the opportunities, and we'll even have a quote of the day today that fits perfectly with this. You might guess it's a one on investing and involves a, a name that I, I don't really like the guy that says it very much as a person, but I like a guy that shares the name, Buffett, right? Uh, Warren Buffett's famous quote on greed and uh, fear. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Oh, wait. I didn't tell you what the actual show is going to be about today, did I? I kind of left that out. The actual show today, we're going to talk about hydroponics. And we're going to do that for a couple reasons. Number one, we're going to do it because I'm getting a shit ton of questions. So it's kind of a feedback show, but instead of doing individual questions, I'm just going to speak on the subject. We're going to talk a lot about it from the standpoint of growing indoors, but we're really going to come at this from the standpoint of being a prepper. Um, there's a lot of people freaking out right now, and one of the things they're freaking out is about is will they be able to get food. And uh, you're not going to grow a ton of calories with indoor hydroponics in your house. It's, it's just, I mean, you can do some, but really what you're going to grow is nutrition. Well, one thing people really need at a time when you're worried about an illness or disease is nutrition. Uh, minerals, uh, vitamins, etc. nutrition. And there's, you know, there's no reason to panic about calories right now. There's plenty of calories available. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit in the intro, and then we're going to talk again about hydroponics from the standpoint of being a prepper, and it's going to end with a confession, a confession about hydroponics and me and how I feel as a prepper about hydroponics at this point. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. One of the reasons that my uh, my frozen meat supply is in such good repair right now uh, is that uh, every month a giant box of frozen meat shows up at my doorstep, and, or actually out at my gate. And yesterday, not yesterday, the day before yesterday, Saturday, was one such day. Our, my new box from ButcherBox showed up with pastured pork, uh, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry in it. And I immediately tossed everything into the deep freezer and realized I have a hell of a meat supply now. And it's some of the best quality meat you can get your hands on. The reason I get a box every month isn't just because I love the product, because it's actually the way that the sponsor pays me. They're the only sponsor I have. They pay me in product. I'm very, very happy to uh, be paid in meat. And if you give ButcherBox a try, you'll see why, why I'm always raving about them, their service, and their product. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. The Journal of Self-Sufficiency, Self-Reliance, Independence, and Liberty fits right in with TSP. It's a publication I've been a subscriber of since 1994. 
That's a long time. When these guys said they wanted to sponsor the show, I had no qualms about bringing them on as a sponsor. Uh, it is so easy to recommend a publication that I've been reading for that long. They went away for a little while a couple years ago, and they came back. I was very happy when they came back. They're now a print quarterly. This is a magazine you want to be subscribed to. Uh, great information. A lot of information you won't find anywhere else. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. With that, let's get into things today. Um, I want to start out with... Quote of the day, and it spins right into all this hysteria over coronavirus, the virus that right now really isn't. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous how overreaction uh, is taking over here. But this is what Buffett said about becoming rich and opportunities and greed and fear. He said, I will tell you how to become rich. Close the doors. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are fearful. I think the financial mess has further to go. So I don't know that I would run out and start buying a bunch of shit today. Uh, but I don't think you would be necessarily bad if you did. Remember, we, with investing, you cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good with calling bottoms. But I think you're about to see the whole world, and this is what I said in 2008, the whole world's about to go on sale. And if you've prepped and you're ready, you should have some capital in reserve, and you should be ready to take an opportunity here. And I don't know exactly which one or where or how much. But I know that like I'm going to be scouring the whole planet for where the next opportunity lies when it comes to investing or even just maybe buying something at a discount. Um, you know, everybody's going to run out. And, everybody's a prepper today on Facebook. They're going to run out and buy gas. Wait a week. Wait a week because this oil problem is not going to go away real fast. It hasn't even actually happened yet. The Saudis announced they're going to do it. They haven't even actually cut the price yet or actually upped the supply yet. It's not They haven't done it yet. Um, I, I think that you'll see more panic, and it'll be a while before the, the, the pump prices come down. But you know, if you have any empty gas cans, that's where you can start at the, the base of this with, right, is fill those gas or diesel cans up probably next week. Uh, maybe if you want to, you can wait a little bit longer. Uh, let me explain something to you, too, about opportunities when it comes to gas and diesel. You, this is something you use, right? So if gas goes way, way down, then it kind of makes sense to maybe fill your, your, your car from your reserves and fill those cans with nice, fresh gasoline. And maybe there's a point where you say, you know what, I'm going to add a couple cans to my reserve uh, this month and go ahead and fill those up while gas is stupid cheap. You're not gonna get you're not gonna get way ahead with that. We were talking about pennies, you know, here in, in reality, but it's one way to start thinking about this. Now, what's going on here now is a natural overreaction to a media cycle that's now run almost sixty days nonstop with this, with different experts coming on and giving conflicting information, etc., and a level of absolute tinfoil hat bullshit coming out of alternative media that, that shocks even me. I mean, I've been paying attention to this stuff for 20 years, but I've been paying attention to it professionally for 12. And the stuff that I'm seeing come out about coronavirus is absolutely just stupid. Um, the prevailing uh, mythology today is it's not a real virus. It's a bioengineered weapon that China made and unleashed on the world. So China... This is this. See, this is my. I'll, I'll get to. I'll come back to it. So China supposedly here developed this plague, right? That really ain't that lethal in the grand scheme of things. 
And then instead of like releasing it on their enemies, or like instead of like dropping it in Hong Kong, which would have immediately shut down all the protests or anything, they, they take one of their big cities that's like really important to them from a commerce standpoint and they released it there. See, you have to do such mental gymnastics and be such a freaking intellectual retard to believe that. It's just, I saw another one. It's really, it really started in the United States. It started here. Well, that's why they have 70,000, 80,000 cases of it in Wuhan then, right? And we have like, you know, a couple hundred here. That's why. That, that makes perfect. This kind of nonsense, and I'll tell you what, where I was going when I almost sidetracked myself there with this. My problem with the hype is, People like me should be helping you be prepared for this. We spend 50% of our effort to first put things into perspective of the reality before we can talk about preparations and dealing with the situation. Because we cannot start talking about preps and dealing with it if we start from a point that is, that is divorced from reality. We can't do our jobs effectively. And I say we, and I'm wondering how many people there are actually doing this effectively right now that are, that are, that, that are primarily saying calm the F down. Because if you're listening to somebody that is not saying calm the F down, you probably should stop listening to that person. And if you're listening to somebody that's telling you, here's all the things that you need to buy, and by the way, pay me for that information or buy it from me, you probably should stop listening to that source. There's a, there's a fundamental reality in this industry of preparedness. And I've been doing this now, again, professionally for, it'll be 12 years in June. So I, I have a little bit of experience in the industry that I'm talking about. And what happened that set my course toward sustainability in this industry very early on was I was approached by somebody. And that somebody was a publisher of books. And he had published a book seven different times in different stages of hysteria. And the latest stage of hysteria, he had published the book for the seventh time, and he was now releasing it for the eighth time. And it was a good book, so I did promote his book. And it taught me something really, really important that had nothing to do with preparedness directly. It had to do with business. This man was really smart, and he sold space in the book to companies that advertise preparedness products. So he paid for all his publishing costs with advertiser money. So you got this book, you got all this information, but you all, it was like a yellow pages type book. Okay? And it had all these companies and all the stuff they supplied. So while you're reading about preparedness, here's a company that does water filtration. Here's a company that does seed storage. And here's a company like that, right? So I'm sitting here looking at this book, and this is about 2008 when I started the show. And I'm actually kind of fascinated with all the companies that are involved in preparedness that I had never heard of. So I start looking them up. 95% of them did not exist. They existed in 1999 as he was selling this book in the build-up to Y2K. And by 2008, 95% or more of them were gone. They didn't exist. And I said really, really quick to myself, Hey, self, you can't build a business on preparedness with this model. Or you, too, will not be here in a few years. Because when the crisis du jour goes away... Right, then you are going to go away too if you build on hype and crisis only. And over the years, I've realized that there are a lot of companies in this industry that they barely survive during the time between the crisis. If we don't get a good crisis every couple of years, they'll be out of business. 
So when a crisis comes, it cannot be allowed to go to waste, right? In the words of a, a famous bureaucrat, right? So they have to capitalize on the crisis, and they have to get the sales during the crisis. And if they don't get the sales during the crisis, they won't make it till the next crisis. It's like a bridge capital loan or bridge capital revenue for them. And then it all gets cascaded. And what's going on now is idiots. And if you are doing this, you are an idiot. I'm sorry. They go to a store that happens to be sold out of toilet paper of all effing things. They take a picture of that store sold out of toilet paper, and then they put it on social media and say, Oh, my God, there's no toilet paper at Costco. Oh, my God, major alert. Costco has limited all these things to five items only. Ah! If you're doing that, you are part of this problem. You are creating the problem you claim to be fighting. You're causing hysteria, and then people overreact. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch people really hungry living inside their toilet paper forts, I guess. I mean, and you got people, like I said, out buying dry beans, have no idea how to make, have never made a dry bean in their life. They're out buying 20 bags of dry beans. They cook with beans all the time that come out of a can. And they're stripping the shelves of dry beans while the shelves full of canned beans are stacked to the back in double height. You see the problem here. And it's what I said on Friday is exactly what's going on. When we used to do the meals and people would come in for dinner at the workshops and we let people serve themselves, the first guy would take a giant, huge, massive amount of brisket And then everybody would just start like, oh, I gotta eat the brisket, I gotta eat the brisket. And then you'd end up with the last guy getting a tiny ass little burnt piece of brisket and me not eating any. And then watch people throwing it away. Because they didn't eat it all. Because they got in that mode. And as soon as we put limits on it and said, here's your portion, come back when you're done, we have massive amounts of food we cannot get rid of. Same number of people, same amount of food. Because when you get that competitive mindset going, people start grabbing everything that they can get their hands on. Well, there's a point where I guess you have enough toilet paper and bottled water, and the bottled water is even dumber. The bottled water, at least toilet paper, if it runs out, you're kind of screwed, aren't you? You know, you're, I guess you're, you're wiping your ass with a wet washcloth and cleaning it with the bleach you also stockpiled, I guess. Um, but water? Water. In a country with clean, potable water... To every house in America. Now, I recommend filtering your water. I don't like some of the shit they put in water. But in the end, if you need water, you're not going to be without water. Everybody's preparing for the last disaster. What everybody thinks of is, you know, the hurricanes and flooding and all of that stuff. And everybody needed sanitary items and bottled water. And, you know, we were beaten up on Best Buy for selling water for the same price they do every day. That by the way, when they were price, Best Buy is price gouging water. Well, they were selling the bottle for like a buck sixty in the line, and people wanted to buy cases of it, so they took you know twenty four times a buck sixty and they put that on the case, and people flipped out. It's herd mentality, and the biggest danger in all of this is the overreaction of the herd and the hype. The other side of it is they want Trump out of office. And the left is literally, sal it's disgusting, but the left is literally salivating over the opportunity they have here. And the lefts, leftists in the government will make this worse to get rid of Trump, period. And I'm just going to say the deep state is a real thing. I'm not a huge Trump fan, but the deep state is a real thing. He is not liked by the deep state. 
And if you look at some of the deep state players, like the Bushes, right? Okay, it's not conspiracy. This is a well-known fact. The Bushes have major oil interests and major connections with the royal family in Saudi Arabia. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all this shit, Saudi Arabia decides to just start pumping oil like crazy and crash the economy. And the one thing I've always said about Trump getting reelected, it's inevitable unless the economy crashes. There you go. What's going to happen? We'll see. But I'm not going to sit around worried about it. I am still, to this day, more worried about how far behind I am prepping my property to grow food this year than I am about the coronavirus as a direct threat to my existence. And on that note, I want to switch over to the main topic today, hydroponics for preppers. And I, I want to start off with the, the standpoint of just kind of framing it that way, that that's where we're coming at this from. Like I've done shows on hydro before, and it was really all about the technology and what it does and how it works. And we're going to talk about that a lot today because we kind of have to to make it work, right? But we're coming at this from the standpoint of what does hydroponics do for you if you're a prepper? And I want to frame it just starting out with the way people generally think about producing their own food as preppers and homesteaders. And while we have things like seed banks and stuff like that that I've never been a big fan of because seeds do have a shelf life. Some really last a long time, and the ones that really last a long time and stay you know, able to germinate for a long time don't really need a lot of special treatment. And the ones that don't have a long shelf life tend to not do well no matter how you store them. So things that are historically really bad about long-term storage uh, is going to be seeds like onions and chives and all your alliums. That's just one example. And, you know, I, I've kind of tested that theory from some older seed banks and said, well, let's see if the onion seeds germinate. And they just, like, it's like 5% germinate. And yet I've seen tomato seed kept in a, a paper envelope in a cigar box for years in a cold that in the winter and hot in the summer, you know, shelf in, in, a, in, a, in a shed and planted them and had, you know, 90% germination. So I've never been big on it. But the, the concept of, of feeding yourself from growing gardens, et cetera, is huge in the prepper space. There's products for it. There's niches. There's forums. Most preppers either grow some of their own food or at least think it's a good idea. And I want to just start out with today, like, I want you to think about how this works. Let's say that you grow some of your own food, but not as much. And you, all of a sudden you decide, I need to ramp up production. And it's, it's not even a bad time of year. Like, let's say that's in December. That kind of sucks if you live in a lot of North America because it's freezing outside. Let's say it's right now. How long does it take you to get the fastest turning crops that we have, like lettuce and spinach and stuff like that, to, to get to enough size that it's worth harvesting from seed right now? And the answer is somewhere around 50 days. 50 to 65 days for most of those crops, if we plant them in the soil. That's all to assuming we kind of start them indoors in pots and transplant them if they transplant well. A lot of the country right now, you can't even get good germination unless you do some tricks like some black plastic or something because the soil's too cold. Even here, it's pretty nice out. The soil's cold. And if you look at germination time for seeds, there's a direct correlation between them being cold and how long. There's some seed that'll take 60 days if the soil's, let's say, 45 degrees. But they'll germinate in seven days if the soil's 80 degrees. 
So you have this pretty long time, and then you that's that's what you have. You've started that group of food, and you don't have, you know, unless you're really good about succession planning, okay, now you have another wave to produce. And if we're trying to grow things like beans and cucumbers and tomatoes, there's a window we can do that in. And then the harvest comes, and then it goes away. But there's a long lead-up to that. But the best stuff to grow, to feed yourself, as I've always said, is buy your calories, buy in bulk if you have to, and grow your nutrition. Grow those fresh vegetables. Grow those mineral-rich, vitamin-rich plants, which is one of the things, by the way, that if you're going to have a flu season, a coronavirus season, whatever, you need as much of that in natural food form as you can get and then add to it with supplementation. So what does it look like if all of a sudden, right now, I decide I need to produce more salad for my family now that I have hydro in my life with two systems, one upstairs and one in my garage? It looks like about 26 days to more than I can eat. And to do that, I can store, our item of the day, by the way, is the, the Master Blend Fertilizer, uh, three-part fertilizer uh, combo. I can store enough food to run my systems 24-7, 365, for three years by buying $55 worth of fertilizer. I'll give you the numbers on how that breaks down earlier. So I'm just, again, I don't care what you think of, and we'll talk about some of the misconceptions about hydro in a second, but no matter what you think about hydro as an environmental concept, The simplicity, the reliability, and the fast production cannot be beat. And the fact that we can do it indoors is huge. So let's think about that as I go through today, coming at this from the standpoint of a prepper that can take some fertilizer, and as long as I have a water supply and electricity, I can grow food indoors 24-7, 365, and a small amount of seed produces an awful lot of food. Okay, So let's start with what does hydroponics even mean? What does the word actually mean? Now, I think most people are aware that hydroponics is growing with water and nutrient. That's what hydroponics is at its core. We grow food, vegetables, plants, whatever you want to call it. And we do that by using water that has nutrients dissolved into it. But the word itself actually doesn't mean that. The word ponics comes from Greek. It's one of the, one of the words that's not necessarily Latin. We have a lot of different roots towards it. I think everybody thinks everything's from Latin. It's not. Um, ponics comes from the Greek and it means to work or to toil so hydro meaning water water working water toiling, water doing the work that's what hydroponics means hydroponics is not good or bad in of itself, it is a technology like a gun is a technology a firearm is a technology semi-automatic is a technology So if we have an AR-15 semi-automatic assault rifle, oh, God, I hate that term, um, it's not good or bad. It's neutral. It's a technology. What are you going to do with it? You defend your home with it. You practice with it. You use it for recreation. Like All of those things are good uses of that technology. Somebody that takes one and goes and shoots a bunch of innocent people, that is, no matter how you feel about guns, that is an abuse of the technology. It's bad. So water working... <laughs> In, in the world of hydroponics, is neither good nor bad. It all depends on how we use it. And there are some really big advantages we get with hydroponics, and I, I wanted to go over them with you today. Um, and I'm also going to go over disadvantages as well. But the big advantage is, number one, it's naturally highly automated. 
if you're growing because of a crisis or during a crisis, you don't have a lot of time on your hands to fret around with things, right? So the automation of the system itself, even something like Kratky that we'll go over today, yeah, there's a point where maybe we have to start adding some, some fluid, but we can actually set that up with a flow valve. But one way or another, it's something you can kind of not touch for a few days and nothing bad happens if you set it up right. It's, it's low maintenance. It doesn't require you to do a lot of stuff. It's mostly planting and harvesting. There's low energy inputs. Even if you're growing indoors with lights, it's not that expensive to do. You get very fast rates of growth and fast turnover, so we can keep a constant supply of fresh food. We're going to plant at a very high density. Since we're giving the plant everything that it needs, we literally only need to give the plant enough space to exist and get its light. That's, that's, that's pretty much all it needs. It might need some airflow as well, but that is really easy and really cheap when we're growing at home scale. We're not talking about massive vertical farms in China with people that are dressed like they're going in a clean room. We're talking about something you can set up in a four-foot by two-foot space in your bedroom. Okay, um, You use less water. You use less fertilizer. You use less insecticide than soil systems. In fact, if you're growing indoor hydroponically at your house, you're probably using no insecticide, no herbicide, none, zero. There's zero fertilizer runoff because you control what you do with your waste fluid. So we're not polluting streams and rivers or what have you. And by the way, even if you dump it down your sewer, it's nutrient. And there's a lot less nutrient in waste hydroponic fluid than there is in the shits your family takes every day. Just to be blunt, like think about what's going down that toilet already. And could we do a better job with wastewater and sewage? Sure we could. But if we compare the fact that somebody dumped, you know, during a water change, 10 gallons of hydrofluid down their, their sewer compared to the waste their family produces through excrement on a, on a monthly basis, it, it, it pales in comparison. It's just not the environmental tragedy. And again, if we're talking about it from the standpoint of a prepper, we're not really worried about that as a prepper during a time where we need to produce more food for ourselves. Um, it can be adapted to any environment, climate, lifestyle, or diet. Those are huge advantages that hydroponics offer. And we should not overlook them as preppers. Because, again, now let's go back to it's late November just after Thanksgiving. We are in 2020, the election's over, we either have the commie or the orange man or the crazy uh, guy with dementia as our president, doesn't even matter. Coronavirus 2.0 hits. And the second wave is way worse than the first wave. And they start quarantining you. You had your, your respite as it ebbed off and now it's back. Or it's something else. Now you need to run, ramp up your, your food production in late November. Okay, go ahead, do it. How long is it going to take you to produce any significant amount of food? Well, if you have hydroponics, 24, 26 days. If we're growing microgreens, 10. Even if you're growing some of the, the, the larger plants that we can produce, like broccoli rob or yadfa or something like that, we build a little bit larger system to accommodate those, 35 days. How long is it going to take you to grow that kind of food outside? In late November. Let's flip to the other side. Let's flip to the other side. Summer's a great time for your garden if it's established in the spring. You ever try to plant food from seed 
when it's 100 million degrees outside and the ground is literally baking on the surface? It's hard. So ramping up your production starting July 15th during a crisis is hard. Doing it in the depth of winter is hard. You actually have a spring and fall window that are the easiest. And the easiest is spring because fall, to hit the fall window right, you're starting in summer. So there has to be some indoor component. But if we have hydro, we can literally turn that machine up anytime we want. We can just add to what we have. It's modular on expansion. Are there any disadvantages? See, I hate people that only sell advantages. The initial startup cost can be high. Now, if you're a commercial producer, extremely high. The system I built cost me about $600 to build. And full disclosure, it actually cost me less than that because uh, Barina gave me the lights for it. So it didn't really cost. But I have that much in other lights, you know, as I did research anyway. It's kind of like, I sold you guys a lot of lights. Can I have some lights? Yeah, here you have some lights. That's how, that's how that worked out. But about a $600 system. That is more expensive than digging a hole in your backyard and throwing some seeds in it. But you know it's going to work. So there's a cost, you know, there. It does require some specialized knowledge. You'll have to learn some things you don't already know. But none of it's that hard. I really didn't, like, become, like, a super brainiac student of this. I just, like, oh, that's how it works. Mix some shit up, throw it in there, stick this rapid rooter, put a seed in. Hey, look, all this shit grows really easy. These seeds don't germinate well like that. These seeds can be tricked into germination and then dropped in here. These things are kind of leggy. Like, it was all stuff like that. The actual fundamental components to doing it, like, it's, it's half a day on YouTube, and you know enough to get it going, right? The fluid must be changed or disposed of. That's really not a disadvantage as a prepper, but it's something you have to do and you have to think about. It can be very difficult right now to be truly organic. As a prepper, I don't care. I don't care. The same person that's storing you know, 55 drums of wheat and rice that are not organic is the one that's crying about that as a prepper. I, I don't have time to deal with that person today. Okay. Um, usually requires electricity. Kratky can eliminate that, but indoors it's going to require electricity unless you're doing a greenhouse. And by the way, there are massive advantages to just greenhouse growing hydroponically even over any other way that you would grow you know, greenhouse or outdoors. And we can also reduce light cost in a greenhouse because what we can do is we can put lights on the plants and we can set that timer so just as the sun's going toward the end of the day, the lights come on and give the plants an extra few hours of light and then turn off. So we can even speed up growth outdoors as long as we're in a greenhouse environment with lighting without paying the full price. So usually some electricity required, but it's minimal. And there is a certain stigma around it. And I want to talk about There's four things that cause the stigma around hydroponics. The first one is lack of knowledge. People just don't know. We call that ignorance. I suffered from ignorance with hydroponics myself. Uh, ignorance also takes the form of, well, everybody knows. When everybody knows something that ain't true, that is the height of of ignorance, and people just accept it. The way I became an advocate of hydroponics, I tried to prove I was right about how bad it was, and I failed miserably. And then I built a monument to my failure. We call that science. Then we have a segment that just hates it for what it is, so they intentionally cause misinformation. They say things that they don't know are true as though they are true. Sometimes, So you can say it's made from ignorance, but I think when you make a claim and you know you're not sure about it, you know what you're really doing, you're lying. So lies. Then we have... Long-distance producers that are growing large commercial-scale hydroponics, and people try that food, and they, that becomes for them what hydroponic food tastes like. I call that crappy plant varieties. So if you're eating tomatoes grown in a greenhouse in California shipped to Florida, 
when Florida can really grow the shit out of tomatoes, and I don't know why, but that happens all the time. And that is a plant variety selected to be shipped over a two-week period before it gets to the store and bought. It's going to taste very lacking in flavor. It's going to suck. And it's about the plant variety and the reason that the variety was selected to go long distance, to have a long shelf life. That's when farmers say, well, I don't get paid for flavor. And most large-scale commercial farmers, they don't worry about flavor at all because they are not paid for it. And people tend to not worry about things that they're not paid for. The next one is, I think, also just as harmful, and it comes from the side that are advocates of hydroponics. And it's called overselling by zealots. I have referred to it as bullshit. These people that say, like, hydroponics is going to save the world, we're going to grow almonds with it or something, it's just nonsense. And, and none of it really is based in reality. And when you put that on the shelf and forget about it, all of a sudden it looks really good. And again, as a prepper, I take a totally different look at something than I do as something to do day-to-day -day all of my life. But since it does have specialized knowledge, I think that it's a good idea to get experience with it. The good news is if you decide you want to do this right now and you get some lights and some sort of a, a container to grow in, etc., and you start doing it right now, in about 30 days you're eating produce that you made. And I just don't know anything else that will do that for you. The fastest thing you can plant in the dirt is about 25 to 30 days, and it's radishes. And I, I, I'd much rather eat arugula than radishes, I'm just saying. Um, we should definitely consider growing indoors, and especially as preppers. First, we have zero pest problems. So what's, what sucks really bad is when you, everything was going pretty good, and you come home one day and you see all these black things called blister beetles all over your cucumbers, and they're all gone. The whole thing is just destroyed. It happened to me in Arkansas, and I'm good at what I do. I had never even seen a blister beetle to that day. We left in the morning to go to the office we had there, and everything was gorgeous. We came back, and there was they, they literally chewed away the fruit and the vine of the cucumbers that were growing up on my patio. There was almost nothing left. And by the next day, there was nothing left. We're not going to have that problem indoors. I wouldn't say it's necessarily zero. But it's very, very minimal and easy to deal with. Total environmental control. We get predictable results. And with vertical systems, you can achieve things like 9 to 20 times yields. I will tell you that I think my vertical farm, there's only two layers, but has you know a separate layer for starting seed at higher density because the plant doesn't need much room when you're first getting started with it. You would say, well, it's two layers, so it probably has 2x yields. So, you know, I'm, I'm growing with, you know, 4 by 2, so 8 square feet, 16 square feet. So it's giving you what you would get from 32 square feet in the ground. Absolutely not. That's nonsense. Probably more like 7x. Because of the density and the quick turn and 24-7, 365 growing. That, I didn't even really try that hard. I could certainly do better. I could certainly figure out how to add another level. Uh, there is some disadvantages to growing indoors. And again, I don't like to talk about advantages without talking about disadvantages. I, I think it's disingenuous. It's the overselling by zealots. It's the bullshit. Initial and ongoing lighting expense is one of them. Environmental control expense. So if you're going to control the environment of a room, there's a cost to cool it or to heat it. The cost of the structure itself, when they really put these farms in and they have to build a building or buy a building, there's a huge cost there, and they can be very labor-intensive if you don't build them well. But that's really commercial. Home systems solve these issues. First of all, the lights are cheap. 
You can get six four-foot Barina lights for $99. One of those lights, now not the same company, but one equivalent of those lights two years ago was $50. What used to be $50 a piece, you can now get six for $100. So the lights are cheap enough that they become irrelevant to the equation. The energy audit is an easy win. These lights are 24-watt lights. You're getting a lot of growth. And electricity is not that expensive for most of us. Now, if you're in one of these places where they've intentionally made electricity really expensive, it might be a little little less of a direct win. But where I'm at, the amount of energy we use compared to the food we produce is just so ridiculous that it's not even worth considering. For indoors, you already have a structure. Unlike a commercial producer, you don't. your house is heated and cooled every day anyway. And you already, so you don't have to worry about any of that. And I, I think that that's something that people tend to overlook when they say, well, I have to, you have to, like, there's all these energy costs. Yeah, but when you're doing it in your house, your bedroom, your garage, whatever, you're already doing that. I want to talk about the four main types. And when I say main, I mean most common. The things that most people do at home. They are Kratky, NFT, Ebb and Flow, and deep water recirculating. Kratky is the easiest one, and we've talked a lot about it this year. But Kratky, we simply take some sort of a vessel or container that has a lid that we either make or came with it, like a Rubbermaid tub. We put some holes in it so we can put net cups in it. We put some sort of media. I like the rapid rooter plugs, but it could be anything. It could be rock wool. It could be what have you. And we plant into it, and the water is touching the media at the beginning. So it stays nice and moist, and it's delivering nutrient to our little seed. It turns it to a little plant. It gets a little bit bigger. The plant starts putting root down, and the plant starts using water and transpiring it. That's like a plant sweating. So it takes water in, and some of the water comes out, and some of the water starts to evaporate. No matter how well covered we are, we lose some of the evaporation. Eventually, the water goes below the level of the media that the plant's planted in. Oh, no, it's going to dry up. No, because by then, the plant has put roots down. And unlike all the other systems we're worried about getting oxygen into the system, we end up with an air gap. So the roots are maybe going two or three inches without touching water, and then they're in the water. So we have roots both below the water level and above the water level. And we get two very different types of roots. You end up with the roots above the water level being really fine hair roots, and then thicker, more conventional-looking roots down into the liquid. But the plant can get all the oxygen it wants from that air gap. And if we're growing plants like lettuces and greens and basils and stuff like that that are the best plants for hydroponics indoors especially, it doesn't matter because by the time that water level's really low, we're harvesting it anyway. And the lower it is, the less affluent we have to get rid of. So small-scale home-growing Kratky's great. Here's the problem. When you grow lots of food outdoors in big containers, you end up with a lot of fluid and no pump to get it out of there. So you're bailing or dumping or draining, and it's kind of, it gets labor intensive. Somebody asked me about if you did a CSA, how much of your produce could you grow for your CSA with Kratky? You, you might be able to grow all of it, but I think by the time you get to like 20, 30 customers, Kratky's probably not what you want to do anymore. Or at least Kratky's not what you want to do for all of it. Because a pump, as we're about to hear, solves a lot of problems. The next one I want to talk about real quick is ebb and flow. We've talked about a lot in the past a lot about with that with, with aquaponics. But ebb and flow simply means that whatever we're growing in, we have a media, we have a plant growing in that media, and water raises up and brings water and nutrient to the plant, and then it goes back down and it leaves the plant with lots of air when that happens. It's like a big breath. Raise, ebb, and then flow out. 
And that can be done on a timer, it can be done on a cycle, however it's done, doesn't really matter. I only bring it up because almost everybody ends up using it somewhere in their system sooner or later. It's very, very common. As, as a person getting started, unless you're trying to build a copy of My Vertical Farm, you want to do the microgreens on the top, you don't even need to worry about it. But there's some things it does really well, it's kind of specialized. But I just want to, I can't not include it today. NFT or nutrient film technique. Nutrient film technique is the way that most growers at commercial scale grow, especially in greenhouses. When you see a video and there's this huge, massive greenhouse, and there's all these white rail-looking things, most of those are either rain gutter or they are the, uh, the poly material uh, designed things for like nylon fencing. That's like one of the most popular things to use now because they're designed to last 25 years sitting in the sun out in the middle of a field. So in a greenhouse where they're kept moist and everything, you know, they have a life expectancy probably longer than a lot of people do. So they last a long time. They're easy to clean. They're easy to sanitize. That's why they use them. You also see home hobbyists generally build either with one of those things or they build with PVC pipe. Most of your PV PVC pipe systems where all the plants are sitting in pipes are some variant of nutrient film technique. Or they're kind of somewhere between nutrient film and deep water recirculating And that'll make sense when I get to deep water. If we're doing true nutrient film, either on a timer or continuously or what have you, fluid is running a very shallow amount of fluid right across the bottom of the channel. And it's the roots are long enough at least to touch it. That creates a humidity rise. It has an air gap, kind of like Kratky, but it has a weakness. Think about taking a garden hose in the middle of summer, It's empty, so it's not already hot. And then a long garden hose, like 150 feet, and laying it right out in the sun and attaching it to your hose bib, and then turn your hose bib on really, really slow. So the water just kind of trickles out the end. You're going to end up in not very long with very, very warm water. Now imagine that that water was being, well, you had a pump in a sump tank. And you ran that hose till it just made a big coil and came straight back and pumped right back into the tank. So it was pumping back to itself. So that warmed water was going back in the tank and taking another trip through the hose. And another trip through the hose. And another trip through the hose. How long would it be before that water got really, really hot? Now flip it around. You take some room temperature water, you put it in a sump, and then you run the hose out your window on a very cold day. And you run it back and you start pumping it. What happens now? That water's going to get very cold very fast because every trip that water makes, you're dropping the core temperature and you're using that really small flow through the temperature gradient to transfer what water usually takes a long time to change temperature. We're accelerating that. That's what NFT does. And in a climate-controlled greenhouse or something like that, it's not that big of a deal. In your house, it's not that big of a deal. But it is the one I do not recommend you start with. I'm not saying I don't want you to do it. I don't want you to start with it because it's the one where I see the most miserable people uh, with failures. And I want you to start in something you're going to probably succeed with. Kratky, you will probably succeed with. And deep water recirculating, you'll probably succeed with. Deep water circulating, it looks a lot like Kratky, except we put a pump in it. And the water circulates. We have a sump. We have a container. In that container, we have a lid. Or on that container, we have a lid and we have plants. Those plants are sitting in fluid. The water pumps from the sump up to the container, overflows somehow back down to the sump. And the water moving puts oxygen in it. 
Because the reason we do cracking and let the, the air gap form is over time, we end up with dissolved CO2 in our fluid, and we end up with low oxygen levels, and then we get root rot and all the plants die really, really fast. They go from beautiful, white, healthy roots to kind of grayish-looking roots to black, soupy roots to dead plants really, really fast if we don't let that air gap form. What I like to do, and I am certainly not the only one doing it, and I am not the creator of it, is combine the element of Kratky with deep water. So once we have plants that have enough root mass to reach down to water, I like to run the level of my deep water tank below the media. So I have an air gap and I get recirculation at the same time. And you can check out my, my vertical farm to see how I get like, I get, I get more aeration in my system than I think a lot of competing systems would get by running my pump 15 minutes every hour compared to somebody even running it continuously. The way I've designed it and set it up, there's just lots of oxygen being go going into that water. And the plants just do fantastic. Deep water is very forgiving. And the reason it's very forgiving, if you design it like cracky. So there's a couple ways we can do that. One, if we start our plants in a system that's smaller, so by the time we transplant them to our larger deep water system, They already have enough roots. That's what I do. I, I either start in my seed starting system or down at the bottom shelf of my, my outdoor farm, my, my garage farm, I guess you'd call it. And I don't move those plants into those two grow trays until they're big enough to go there. Well, by the time they're big enough to go there, they have enough roots to reach, the, to, to reach past the air gap and get to the fluid. So at that point, I can, they can survive. They're not trying to get to the fluid. They're already there. So I want you to think about this. You basically now have a crack key system with a pump. Now what happens is, let's say your pump dies. Let's say for some reason you have to conserve on energy and you choose not to run your pump for a couple days. Nothing bad happens. If you're doing true deep water and it's filled all the way to the top, you start getting problems with your roots because you don't have the air gap. If you have the air gap, you have cracking, you get the advantages of the pump. The pump is a big, big Big, big advantage. And one of those is when you want to change your fluid, whether it's a partial or full fluid change, you have a pump. You can pump the water out. And you can do something like put a hose bib on it, attach a garden hose to it, and even if you're upstairs in your bedroom, if you have a swale that you want your fluid to go into, because, by the way, it's just nutrient, and so it'll be captured in that swale, and it'll go into your system, and it's not going to screw everything up because you're not dumping massive amounts of fertilizer on a system. You're just simply adding some surplus nutrient. You can run that garden hose out your window, across your lawn, and turn the pump on and pump it down almost dry versus hauling buckets. That's another one. Now, I'm about to talk about Master Blend Fertilizer and why I recommend it as a starting point. And again, it is today's item of the day. But a pump is very, very valuable for that as well. When you dissolve the master blend fertilizer, there's three parts. There's the master blend itself, which is the main fertilizer. There's a calcium nitrate, and there's an Epsom salt. And they compete against each other for what's called solubility. In other words, their ability to dissolve in water. And the one that has the most problems dissolving in water is the calcium nitrate. It's little beads, and if you don't mix it well, you'll see all little beads will still be in little bead form, and they just kind of sit at the bottom, and they're all sad. What a lot of people do is they mix it in two parts. They mix the Epsom salt and the master blend as a double strength per gallon, and then they mix the calcium nitrate as a double strength per gallon separately. And then you add them together when you put them in your system in equal amounts, and you end up with half strength of each. 
If that makes sense, like I dissolve a double amount in a gallon of water for calcium nitrate and a double amount of the other two in a gallon, I now have two gallons at double strength. When I mix them, I end up with two gallons at proper strength, right? Two gallons of all three at proper strength. I thought about that, and I'm like, well, you're still putting them together. So I guess if you're mixing it and keeping it on a shelf or something pre-mixed, then that makes sense. But eventually you're putting them together. It's still the same. So what I started doing, and it's worked really well for me, I take a five-gallon bucket, I put four gallons of water in it, I put my calcium nitrate for four gallons in first with Master Blend. That is eight grams, two grams per gallon for vegetative growth. Leaf crops is what you use. Put it in there, and I take a mortar mixer, basically a big, it looks like a big egg beater, that goes into a cordless drill. I put the drill on the one speed, not the two speed. If you put it on two speed, it will throw water out of your bucket. Boy, how do you will. And I don't know your drill. You might Your drills have variable. You want to start a lower speed and come up and see how fast you can go. But I throw the calcium nitrate in, and four gallons is right up to the bottom of, you've got the reinforcing rim at the top of a five-gallon bucket. The bottom of that rim, you can see a line from the outside inside with light behind it. Right up to there is about four gallons. So I fill up that much water up, drop my calcium nitrate in, and I start zipping. Blah. Now I have my little scale sitting there, and I have my jars of Epsom salt and Master Blend, and I measure eight grams of Master Blend, and I dump it in. I put it back on the scale, and this is while it's still running. I just let it run, and then I drop in four grams of Epsom salt, bloom, and just you know run that egg beater, giant egg beater for a little while, and boom, and dump it in the system. With a pump, with a pump, in my system, I have a sump, which is a rubber, a 17-gallon Rubbermaid tub. When I add fluid, I put it in that sump, obviously. I don't go dumping it in the trays up top. That's complicated. It makes a mess. So I put it in my sump. I have a control valve that brings the water up to the trays and the microgreen tray. I close it. I have a valve that vents extra pressure in the sump so that it oxygenates. It's one of the ways I do things. So you think about the pump sitting in the sump. A line comes up and it goes to a T. That T has a valve. It's a simple swing valve coming off of it. It passes through a bulkhead, comes out of the sump, and goes up and delivers the fluid to the three trays in the system. That delivery line has a, a valve. I close that valve, and I open the bleed valve a little bit more, and I turn the timer so the pump will run continuously. I put all my fluid in there, and I let it run as I'm adding my couple buckets of fluid, and I let it run for a little bit. Now it's remixing everything. Then I go ahead and sh shut that control valve down to where it's just making a, a fizzy, bubbly oxygenation, and I open my main valve that goes to the, to the rest of the system. I let it, when I add fluid and new nutrient, I let it run for about an hour nonstop. I set a timer on my phone, and when that timer goes off, I go out there, and the, the timers I use, a little mechanical $9 timer, it has the setting. It says timer or on. If you set it to timer, it'll do whatever you told the timer to do, on, it's on. So I'll just move it from timer to, to back, or from on to timer, and it goes back to its 15 minutes every hour. But I give an hour of circulation when I add new nutrient. I have no settling out whatsoever that way. And because it, it kicks on 15 minutes every hour, it keeps that nutrient dissolved. There's lots of advantages, and I really recommend you start with Master Blend. And the reason I do is I just gave you the recipe. Two grams of Master Blend, two grams of calcium nitrate, and one gram of Epsom salt per gallon, right? So you can just adjust that to whatever amount you're making. Uh, that is for your vegetative growth, your lettuce, your, 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 your spinach, your chard, all that stuff. If you're growing tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that, you up it a little tiny bit. 
you go three grams of the master blend and three grams of the calcium nitrate per gallon and two grams of Epsom salt. And I'm going to kind of just skip ahead to the item of the day so that we don't have to really worry about that once we get to the end of the show today. But here's how it works out. I, I recommend that, you know, maybe you get the two-and-a-half-pound or five-pound kit if you're just getting started and you want to learn. But once you decided you want to save money on this uh, and get the best bang for your buck, I recommend a 25-pound kit. And it's, a, it's, it's designed for those ratios I just gave you. So you get 10 pounds of the Master Blend, 10 pounds of calcium nitrate, and five pounds of Epsom salt. And that way you kind of end with all of it at the same time, right? Um, that makes your fertilizer fluid for 2.5 cents a gallon for vegetative growth, with most of what I grow is vegetative growth. Again, it's leaf crops. If you're doing like tomatoes and peppers, you're at 3 cents for fruiting crops, fruiting and flowering crops. Cause you, you, and you actually can use the vegetative to get your plants started. So if you're starting tomatoes, you're starting cucumbers, you're starting whatever, you start it in the same stuff you, you grow your lettuce in. And when it's time to transplant it, that new place you transplant it to, you go to the higher ratios. And the reason I recommend the Master Blend, again, is 2.5 cents a gallon or 3 cents a gallon for fruiting on a 25-pound kit. But you want to guess how long that 25-pound kit of, of fertilizer will run my vertical farm putting 8 gallons a week in and once a month doing a 16-gallon change? The answer is 36 months. I can run my vertical farm for 36 months if I grow 24-7-65 consecutively for three years in a row on $55 worth of fertilizer. And we know those numbers, and it's great to have an EC meter and pH and all that shit, but if you just buy Master Blend, and unless your water is stupid high in pH or stupid low to the point where it's burning your face when you drink it, and you just use that recipe, guess what? It'll work. You don't have to test anything, it'll work. And if you do regular water changes and stuff like that, it'll work. You won't have anything to worry about. And then if you want to get creative and do more expensive or cooler or, you know, uh, live organisms or whatever, then go ahead. But start with what you know works and you have a set recipe for, especially if you're trying to grow under stress. Like, gee, I can't go out because coronavirus, ah! Okay, well, then you don't need your lettuce to be complicated. You don't need your system to fail. We're talking about this today from the standpoint of a prepper. The fact that I can buy $55 worth of fertilizer, put it in jars so it doesn't get wet, sit it on the shelf, and it'll last for years and never go bad because it's just minerals that are already 50,000 or 500,000 or 5 million years old, that's great. And on the dissolved mineral thing, I want to point out one more thing before I go on here. I've got 10 crops that I think are the best for this indoor-type growing, uh, for nutrition and diver diversity and value and everything else. But the people that say, it's mined minerals, it's mined minerals. Oh, my God, you're killing the planet with mined minerals. You know what else is a mined mineral? Table salt. Where do you think it comes from? Fairyland? I, I use sea salt. Guess what? All salt is sea salt, including mine salt. It all started in the sea. That's how it got there. The sea went away and it was left. But if you, if you use salt... You're using a mined mineral. Also, if you take a multivitamin and mineral supplement, which I highly recommend, many of the minerals in there are derived from <gasps> mined minerals. It's a very small amount. Did you just hear what I said? Three years, 25 pounds. Compare that to how much fertilizer True Green Chemlon puts on a small lawn for one fertilization. It is a fraction of a fraction. 
And that's why I'm so impressed with what it does as a prepper. Now, let's talk about plants you can grow. And I wanted things that I've grown. I don't, so I'm not speculating here. They taste good. In fact, they taste better hydroponically than they do from the store, even when you buy high-quality organic. And they have to be ready from the time you put a seed in a plug until you put it in your mouth in 25 to 35 days. That if we couldn't get under a month mostly, that it was not good enough as a prepper. We want stuff that grows, tastes good, everybody will eat it, it gives us lots of nutrition, it looks good, it makes us happy. So here they are, lettuce. I don't care what kind. However, I'm going to tell you that if you're going to start doing this, buy five or six varieties of lettuce, maybe ten varieties of lettuce, whatever, and try starting three of each. Some don't seem to start very well. They don't germinate very well. And these are I'm using good, pelleted, expensive seed from known suppliers. And certain varieties just don't do as well as others. I know you're going to ask me to give you the data of what grows best. I will have that for you soon. I'm doing trials. But, you know, I'm doing like, I've got like 20 varieties, maybe 30 varieties of different lettuces. And some optimize not so much as a prepper, but optimize for a market gardener. Totally different world. But I'll tell you what grows good. Almost all your romaines grow good. A lot of your red varieties go good. Your, your oak leaf varieties grow good. Um, I've had really, really good with the, the one-cut Salanova types. But you know what I'm saying is don't rely on one. Don't just get black seeded Simpson, right? Get a few different varieties and find the ones that in your system grow well. And then you're going to find that some of them do really well in different times of the year because you do have temperature fluctuations. If you're growing in a greenhouse versus indoors, you have light discrepancies, etc. So find the ones that do best. But lettuce is great. And everybody that eats salad tends to eat lettuce. And no matter what you feel about lettuce, there's probably a type of lettuce you like in a salad. I am not saying grow iceberg lettuce. I think iceberg lettuce can just go away and die. I have no use for iceberg lettuce. I don't think I've bought iceberg lettuce for 20 years, and I think whenever we do end up with iceberg lettuce in the house, I'm like, why is this here? I just have no use for it. It has almost no nutritional value. It just it doesn't have a lot of flavor. So I'm talking romaines, oak leaves, etc. Next, basil. Basil is the number one crop for commercial hydroponics producers because it's a high ROI. It grows fast. I'm talking, I have harvestable basil in about 26 days. Now I'm running an 18 on light cycle to get that, but I'm talking 25, 26 days, I've got a really nice sized basil plant. And basil comes in so many varieties. I'm growing red basil. I'm growing Genovese basil, your, your typical big you know basil leaves. I'm growing um, lemon basil. Uh, I grow Thai basil, so there's all kinds of variety within basil. And basil, the only thing it asks from you is that you give it some warmth. So if you're growing in your garage, it will even do fine, assuming your garage doesn't freeze. In a cooler garage, when you're growing it out, it'll take a little longer. But you've got to start it somewhere where your temperatures are like in the 70s. High 60s, low 70s, somewhere in there. If you do that, it will just gift you with glorious basil all the time. And there's so many varieties. And it's one of those things you can play with. And you can actually find like a basil mix that you can grow. Because just because we're preppers and just because there's a plague ah, going on doesn't mean we can't really enjoy our food. So basil, they have like lettuce leaf basil. And all this, every basil I've thrown at this, I see why the commercial growers do it. It tastes so good. It's got so much flavor compared to what you buy in the store. I am not going to say it tastes better than the basil I grow in the ground outdoor in the summer. It tastes about the same, 
but I can eat it in January. And you can play with these systems to where you can actually start changing the flavor profile by how you do your nutrients, how you do your light time, switching light time, etc. I'm not getting into that. Thing. I'm talking about this as a prepper. Basil, basil, basil. Cheap seed, lots of it, lots of different varieties. Arugula. Arugula is the fastest, most dependable thing you can grow with hydroponics. And it's so much better than lettuce. It's got so much more flavor, and it's got, it is a nutrient powerhouse, especially when you grow it in hydroponics. This thing about hydroponic food being nutrient deficient falls under the category of lies. The people saying this have no evidence to this whatsoever, and it defies logic and reason. You take a plant in a pH-balanced fluid with bioavailable nutrients of every kind that it could want, and it's like, no, I don't want that. Screw that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to have that nutrient. It's stupid. You have these plants with these massive hair root systems. And, oh, they're not going to... They're selenium, but I don't want that. No, that's icky. I mean, come on. Let's use our brains. That same person will tell you how you shouldn't eat plants that are grown in a nature strip between the sidewalk and the road because it's going to take up toxins. So the plant will take up toxins it doesn't want by the side of the road growing in soil, but it won't take up nutrients it does want from a bioavailable dissolved solution in a perfectly balanced system where it's being delivered directly to its roots. You sound like an idiot when you make that claim. And arugula compared to lettuce and a lot of other things, badass nutrient powerhouse. And you take a pinch of arugula, you drop it in a rapid rooter plug, and in a warm environment, you will probably have germination by the next morning. You will have little plants growing really fast by the third day. And you're almost at a point where you need to start cutting at like that 25-day number because it starts to get so big it gets a little bit too sharp and bitter. It will start to get hairy stalks on it and almost want to go to seed at 30 days when you're running an 18-hour light cycle. That's how fast it is. Um, spinach. I hated trying to grow spinach. I had so much failure to germinate. I went to the plastic bag trick. I take a, a paper towel, a couple layers of paper towel, wet it under the sink, and squeeze it out until it's just damp. I open it up like a book and put however many spinach seeds I want to start on there, a couple extra ones, and then I fold it over, I put it in a Ziploc bag and seal it and throw that Ziploc bag on top of my cable TV box. Why? It's warm there. Spinach likes cold. Yeah, but it likes to germinate and warm, apparently. And about... Three days, four days into it, you open it up and you see all these little rootlets sticking out of your, your uh, spinach seed. Drop that spinach seed into your hydroponic media, drop it into your hydroponic system, and it grows. And it's the best spinach I've ever eaten in my life. It, spinach can be kind of thin in texture, like it doesn't have a lot of body to it. And a lot of times when you buy it from the store, it's thick It's juicy, it tastes good, it's full of nutrients, and it's easy. And it's, again, 25, 28 days, you're harvesting. And if you're doing cut and come again, you could be harvesting at like 18 days, 15 days. When I say harvest, I mean it's big enough if you wanted to, and if you've got a succession going where you're bringing new plants in, you're starting new plants every week, I'm talking take the whole plant, cut it off, and start over. That's what I, that's what I mean when I say 26, 27, 28 days to harvest. Spinach, you're more like 30 if you want to do that. If you want to get, you know, you've, you're going to get so much more growth in those few extra days, it's worth letting it go. 
But spinach has become one of my favorite cut-and-come-again in a hydro system. And what I do with cut-and-come-again, I'll harvest and harvest. And when that plant looks like it's like it's starting to get kind of like it's going to go to seed or it's going to start growing a little funky or it starts to get a little bit of bitterness to it beyond what it's supposed to have, okay, then I take the whole plant. Because I can't even harvest fast enough to take the whole plant and keep going. Because I, I just can't. Uh, next, kale, yadfa, Chinese broccoli, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, broccoli rob, all of those are great. Broccoli rob is a really great one. Um, broccoli isn't so much because you're trying to grow that big head. It's a longer duration plant. But anything can you eat individual shoots from or like kales, anything in that, that kale, broccoli rob family, fantastic, really fast. Yadfa, the Chinese broccoli kale, What I noticed in my system, I don't get the little florets because the plant is so spoiled, it needs a little bit of stress. But you get a huge, basically a really tender, delicious kale in like 30 days. It's massive. Like you have to harvest it. Like it's in the way. It's starting to eat other plants. So kales and things like that, really, really good. Again, that's all the hipsters are into because they're nutrient-dense. Um, bok choy and pak choy. I, I just have bok choy on my list, but both of them I kind of put together. The purple pak choy I talked about this year, boy, that stuff is it is beautiful in 30 days. It is a perfect size for kind of a, a li, like a big baby size that you would buy in a store. Big baby bok choy, you know, like not real itty bitty, but not super sized either. And what I found with it, put two in your plug. And when you see one really starting to dominate the other one, it'll be a baby at that size, a little baby, and everything tastes better as a baby. Go ahead and cut it right at the base. Don't cut the other one, the little smaller one. It'll Now, once you take away the, the bigger sibling who's kind of dominating, it takes off and you get a full-size one at 30 days. That way you get a half-size one at about 18 days and a full-size one at 30 days from the same growing area. It's pretty cool. Bok choy, definitely. Sorrel, the red vein sorrel, one of those plugs is worth five, six dollars to a restaurant chef. You can grow as many as you want forever and ever, and in 26 days you have a beautiful plug of this gorgeous, lemony, zesty red sorrel high in nutrients. And you can grow the regular green sorrel as well. I've done both. They both do about the same. I like the red sorrel because it looks better and it tastes better in my opinion. Shiso. Shiso, you're, you're feeding yourself gourmet sushi level shit. I've just started trial it. Grows like effing crazy. Germinates in about three days. Um, I've got stuff right now that's about eight, nine days old. It's a couple inches tall. And I, I, it's following the same pattern, like kind of like basil and mint do. It is going to just, in the next ten days, just go nuts. I need to like start eating stuff outside so I can take the, the shisho that's upstairs out to the outside. Or i got to put it in the ground or something. Because I know it's going to go. Fortunately, I only grew three of them. It's more of a summer crop for me. But, hey, you can grow it in the winter with this. Uh, chicory, and they, a lot of places call call it dandelion, but it, they they call they call it French dandelion, or, uh, French dandelion, or Italian dandelion, or whatever. But most of it isn't dandelion because dandelions are little, you know, blow and make a wish, and the seeds go everywhere. These seeds are a much more dense seed, look kind of like a lettuce seed, and uh, so they they market them as a dandelion, but they're really a chicory species. Your red chicories, like I've talked about this week, it adds a lot of bite and bitterness and density and it's just and it's fast 
I don't have on here, I'll add, I should have included Mizuna Mustard. Mizuna Mustard is fantastic in hydroponics. Fast, delicious, and it's got that rich bite mustard. And on the arugula, you know what I'm going to say, wasabi arugula too. The wasabi arugula takes a little longer, but God, the flavor. And the last one, and I think a lot of people will be surprised by this and how big it gets in 30 days, Swiss chard. Swiss chard is a great vegetable. It's one of those things when you turn people onto it and they start growing their garden, like, where has this been my whole life? Because it's like a spinach you can grow in the summer, and it grows for like a whole season and a half before it goes to seed. Usually you can get like 18 months out of it. You can overwinter it in like anything above like zone 7. Uh, with some protection, you can probably do it in zone 6. Even if it, it looks like it dies back, if you protect it, it'll come back in the spring. It's, it's an amazing plant, but it's not really known for being quick to harvest from seed. I've got some at 30 days, they've, they've outgrown the, the space to the lighting on my indoor farm. Like, it's, it's insane. And you get a nice baby full-size plant to harvest at about 26, 28 days. Really be- And then you've got all the different colors you can do. So if you start thinking about that mix, lettuce, basil, arugula, spinach, kale, bok choy, uh, sorrel, sisho, chicory, and Swiss chard, the, the, the mixes you can make with that, the nutrient, the flavor, all that. And as a prepper... The fact that you can have that kind of on-demand 24-7, 365 with a box of seeds and a few jars of fertilizer, and you got three years of growth ahead of you, man, and you can grow anything indoors. You really can. When people say, like, you can grow tomatoes, you can grow corn, you, there is nothing that you can't figure out the right procedure to grow, but you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you necessarily should. You could stick your penis in a beehive and start beating on the roof. No one will stop you. In fact, some people will encourage you. But you probably shouldn't do that. That's probably a bad idea. It'll hurt, right? Now, if you try to grow tomatoes in your house, it's not going to hurt. But you're going to do an awful lot of work for a few tomatoes. You have to be like stringing lights from the roof and running the lights vertically to light the whole. It's it's gonna, or you're going to have to put in a grow tent or something like that. And I just as a prepper. I don't think it makes sense. As a plant geek, as an experimenter, is I just want to do this because it's neat, I'm fine with it. But all the energy you would put into producing a handful of tomatoes, I could produce you know, tens or twenties of pounds of greens in a quarter of the time. And so I just think you should think, for the indoor especially, I am going to grow the hell out of squash, tomatoes, and some other things outdoor-ish hydroponics, like in the greenhouse, some other spots I have kind of where I could put, like, if you do hydro outdoors, you really want to put some sort of cover over the top of it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a greenhouse, but you want, like, a transparent roof or something because you don't want rain diluting your solution. That's that's the reason we do that, okay? Um, Next, as a seed starting system, And I've talked about my seed starting system a lot, so I'll just go through it quickly. I'm just going to say I have not tried any method of starting plants to be planted out in soil in a garden that's even close to what my Kratky seed starting system does. The fact that I can have tomatoes from seed, well started, six inches tall, vine as big as my thumb, ready to plant in the ground with blossoms on it in 25, 26 days is insane to me. I cannot even get my head around it. The fact that I can have a pepper plant ready to go in the ground in 30 days from a seed is insane. So as a prepper that gardens, I think at minimum you need to look at using this to start your plants. Because it 
I also want you to think about it's not just speed to plant from a standpoint of it's nice that I can get there fast. The longer it takes for a plant to get to a certain position where you can use it for something, whether it's food or transplant, the longer it's there, the longer you have to take care of it, and the longer there is for something to go wrong with it. The beautiful thing about producing arugula in 26 days is there's only 26 days for something to go wrong. And that includes less likelihood of something catastrophic destroying my crop, but it also includes if something does destroy my crop, it's only 26 days to make a new one. I haven't lost half a season. So really look at that. And nothing I know of when it comes to food production in general beats hydro for speed, for quality, reliability, and yes, flavor. And the flavor is because I have, I have literally cut a living being and before it has chance to start dying, I'm already eating it. You, you really have to think about that. And yes, that's the same when you go out and you cut mizuna mustard out of your garden. I under, if you go cut it right now and you make a salad with it this afternoon, yes, you've done the same thing. But you can't do that 12 months out of the year. And as a prepper, that starts to become important. Because if you think about, like, people kind of piss on the idea, well, you can only really do the best things as leafy greens. Okay, but those are the things that don't store, they don't ship. They don't store and they don't ship well. They just don't. They they ship. They they, they they travel about as well as a toddler on an airplane, right? They just it doesn't. It's not a good way to do things, it, especially some of the stuff like the Mizuna mustard. Just I mean, uh, Swiss chard. Like even Swiss chard is like one of the better ones. But when you buy it from the store, it just it ain't the same. And being able to have that fresh on demand food year round, and the, again the quality of flavor. If you doubt me, set up a little system, grow it, and taste it. And grow, grow arugula, grow a mustard, and grow a basil. And taste those three things. And I guarantee you, you're not going to email me and say you're a jerk and you lied. You're going to say you're a jerk and now I'm, now I'm not going to do this more. That's what's going to happen. And I want to end today with a confession. I am literally, as a prepper, embarrassed that it took until almost my 12th year of doing this show to get on board with hydroponics. The fit for preppers is so perfect that I am embarrassed that I let the stigma keep me away from it for over a decade. I'm embarrassed that I who preach never believe anything until you verify it allowed myself to be sucked into everybody knows about hydroponics. Everybody knows it tastes like crap. Apparently, no, it doesn't. Taste it and you find that out. Everybody knows the systems are sterile and there's no, there's no bacteria or fungi in them. And you, you, you do the research, and yes, yes, there is. It, it makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't there be? You create a perfect environment for bacteria and fungi to exist in, and then it won't show up? Really? Come on. It's, it, is, it was a mistake. It was a mistake that I didn't bring this to you. And it, we should look no further than what is the ultimate survival situation that we as a species willingly put ourselves into space travel there is nothing that compares to space even like the ocean or going under the ocean there is nothing that compares to a, a, a half dozen people in a pressurized tube traveling through empty outer space as a survival situation nothing and this is how NASA grows plants. Now, they use aeroponics, which we really didn't talk about today. But that's where the, basically the roots are misted. 
But I'll tell you one of the reasons they do that. Water's weightless in space. So you can't put it in a container that's not contained fully because it floats. So by misting it under pressure, aeroponics works in space. But I guarantee you, if we ever really get to Mars and we ever start really building settlements on Mars where, where there is gravity, it won't just be aeroponics. It'll be aquaponics. I'm sorry, hydroponics. You will not see the International Space Station with a tilapia tank, but you will see them grow hydroponic food and eat it. And if something works in that survival situation, we as preppers should not turn away from it as a part of our preparedness plans if our individual preparedness plan includes producing your own food. Because if it doesn't, it doesn't. But boy, I think a lot of people that don't want the trouble of a garden, and as a prepper, one more advantage before I wrap up. People always used to tell me in the very beginning when I talk about all this gardening stuff, but Jack, when the zombies come, they'll steal my tomatoes. Well, first of all, I think you're stupid for, for that. And if you just don't want a garden, just say it. Don't make a dumb excuse. But there is a legitimate potential for in a really stressful situation when you have this great big garden with all this food in it for somebody to come take it or for animals to come eat it, like deer. And yeah, like if that happens when you're depending on it, that really sucks. Well, if it's in your garage or your bedroom, that's not happening. The zombies aren't getting it, the deer ain't getting it, the bugs ain't getting it, you're getting it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's show, and I, I really mean that. I'm not just being melodramatic. I, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed that it took me so long to get on board with hydroponics. It's not going to be everything I do. It's not even going to be the bulk of what I do, but I will do it forever now because it works so well, and it makes us able to eat so well during a time of the year when normally we're having to rely on stored food and purchased food and shipped-in food. Uh, there's a lot more we'll be talking about in the future, including the business opportunities around it, uh, including micro CSAs and going a little bit larger. But today I just wanted to come at it from a prepper standpoint. With that, let's wrap things up. Reminder, you can always help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, if you check out tspaz.com, you'll see all the stuff that I've reviewed, and you'll see our items of the day. Item of the day today is the Master Blend Fertilizer. I'm not going to say anything more about it because, well, we already covered it in today's episode. But you can help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Last today, let's talk about our song of the day today. I'm going off of John Adams' um, list of, of songs today, and I'm going to do my own week. Do my own week. I'm doing CCR, or Creedence Clearwater Revival Week. And with that band falling apart the way that it did, and then John Fogarty being held hostage by the record company for almost a decade, um, not only did we not get more great music out of CCR like we should have, we didn't get out of, out of lead singer John Fogarty. And with that band's feuding and, and what have you, people can say whatever they want, but Clarence Clearwater Revival was John Fogarty. And the lack of really big success for anybody else out of that band shows it. If, if Fogarty would have been a solo artist and not held ha hostage by a record company, and I won't get into that today, I think that he might have been one of the greatest all-time selling artists ever. Like up there with the, the biggest of the big. I really do. And so much got derailed from it. So I'm going to start the week with one of my favorite songs by them, But it's about this very thing coming. And it's called Have You Ever Seen the Rain? Uh, it was actually used in the soundtrack for uh, the Adam Sandler uh, remake of uh, The Longest Yard. Burt Reynolds did the original, and Burt was actually in uh, the remake. 
with, with a different role. And uh, it was really kind of a really well-used song there. And, and it gets... It gets looked at as being kind of about rain itself, and it gets used a lot of times in movies and stuff like that, kind of in that way, because it's a very happy-sounding song. Um, and it's just, it's got probably one of the most recognizable guitar intros of any, like, since you hear that, you're like, oh, I know what this is, I know it's coming. And, and most people like this song, that, at least as far as I've found, uh, especially people old enough to actually appreciate good music. Sorry, it's true, though. Anyway, um... What this song's actually about, CCR was at the absolute pinnacle of their success. The top. And Tom was going to leave. Uh, John's brother Tom was going to leave. And John knew it was coming. And this song was about the sadness that when things were really at their best, everything was going to fall apart. But John no longer sees this song as a sad song. He says every time he, see, he, he sings this song, or even hears it now, if he hears it on the radio, it makes him think of his daughter and how much she loves the rain and rainbows. And I thought it was a good song to lead off with today because everybody's really going into meltdown mode over the stock market response and the oil war because of coronavirus. And uh, The things that look the stormiest often turn out pretty good in the long run. Like I keep saying, we're going to get through this. And, and I, I, I hope... And I'm probably going to do a show on it tomorrow about what we. I hope we learn from this. And the sad part is I don't think we're going to. Because it is a problem, but it's an overblown problem. And if you see the way people are reacting to an overblown problem, how do you think they're going to react to a really, really big problem? How are they going to react to that? And unfortunately, we may find out. There's a lot we can learn from this storm. A lot we can learn from this storm. The question is, will we? I don't know, but I wanted to go out on kind of a really, you know, even though that's supposed to be a sad song, I've always considered it a very happy song today. So with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.